Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Kentucky singer-songwriter Sturgill Simpson is used to doing what he wants, when he wants. At least until contracting COVID in early March sidelined him. After a rough, months-long battle with the virus, Sturgill was itching to get back into the studio. So in October, he released a surprise bluegrass album that masterfully reworks his back catalog, called Cut and Grass Volume 1. Sturgill was in his mid-30s when he found fame as a country artist in Nashville. He had already lived a full life, including a stint in the Navy and years spent working in Salt Lake City rail yards. His outsider status in Nashville only boosted his outlaw appeal. But as time passed, Sturgill began to despise the relentless expectations of the major label system. So in true rebel fashion, Sturgill has now taken back control of his career and returned to his independent roots. In this interview with Rick Rubin, Sturgill explains why his Bluegrass album is the purest expression of his work, why it bothers him that people often overlook the stories in his songs, and why being classified as a country star has been perhaps the biggest detriment to his career. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Sturgill Simpson. What's happening, Maine? Oh, not much, man. Sunday morning is a donut day around these parts, so... For the kids, so that's my that's daddy's day to get up early and go handle breakfast and all that. So I'm, is donuts only on Sundays? Oh yeah, only on Sundays and only for the kids. I don't I don't touch that shit. So what's your what's your diet like overall? Mostly, I just try to monitor blood pressure ever since the COVID. So nothing that's going to like cause a lot of cholesterol and things like that. Blood pressure or blood oxygen? 
blood pressure. Really? How did how did COVID affect your blood pressure? Uh, the early onset, everything was just insanely high when I went to the hospital. My my initial reading when I checked in the ER was like one eighty seven over one sixty four. About to stroke out like an old man. So is that a normal COVID? I hadn't heard that one before. You know, I, I'm not sure. I, I I honestly I was pretty obsessive about it for a couple months after I had it, and then now I feel like I have superpowers. But uh, so I've gotten kind of lazy. I don't know where the preliminary studies are coming in at, but I mean, the symptoms are sort of all over the place. For me, it was just this really intense frontal lobe headache and some severe chest tightness, which is what led me to uh, have her take me in. Yeah, did you did you know people who had it before you had it? No, man. We we played the last show of our tour on March 10th in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was only that day that there was any type of mainstream media awareness or like when all the panic buttons started going off and we were all just sort of like, whoa, there's a lot of people back here, you know? So the next day we had off and we're supposed to be heading to, I think, Virginia or Philly for some shows that weekend. And my wife and I were still in Charleston. I was just like, man, I don't feel right. Like I was just physically just, I don't know how to even describe it, man. I was so the most intense fatigue I felt in a long time. And, you know, with this job, if there's one thing that you are become accustomed to, it's fatigue, but this was something different. So, and then that, that day I just told her, I was like, I don't think, I think I need to go home and rest. Like something's not right. I can't breathe. And uh, all the, the inner voices, like I probably got this shit in Europe, like here we go. And then the next morning I was in the hospital. So. Wow. And how long were you in the hospital for? Oh, I was just there for about six or seven hours. They wouldn't, uh. Well, they wouldn't even test me. And then the doctor spent about 40 minutes sitting on my bed with his mask off, telling me all the reasons why I couldn't possibly have contracted. And it was in Europe at that time. And it was so rare. And all the stuff we now know to be completely false. Not to complain. There's a whole lot of people in a hell of a lot worse shape than I was. But So how did you know you had it if they wouldn't test you? Just what they were saying about symptoms. And uh, it felt like I had a ratchet strap going on around my chest and uh, my wife had been really fatigued and tired too and that initial onset only lasted for a couple days those those symptoms all sort of evaporated as fast as they came on and then i was just really tired for about two or three weeks i felt just you know took like two naps a day which is very unlike me what made it better because you you didn't take any therapeutic drugs uh actually my yeah my booking agent jl brought me a big old cornucopia basket of like holistic medicines and vitamins and um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, detoxifants and stuff. I was just drinking tea a lot, a lot of water. And plus we live out and we're pretty secluded. I probably overshot it on the seclusion to be honest. And uh, so just eating a lot of vegetables and, and trying to be healthier and going for walks. And, uh, and then I think it was around March 12th or 13th. I was in the hospital and we didn't actually get tested until the first very, very early April, and I was still, I still detected like positive wow. result. So I must have had a really large viral load or exposure, I guess, for it to stick yeah. around that long. I don't know. And do you have any, um, like, do you have asthma or any, uh, no, no, nothing allergic like to anything? No, my lungs are huge, man. I got like big fat swimmer lungs. So I, the whole tour, you know, we played nine or 10 shows, I can't remember, and like something wasn't right. I remember vividly knowing. 
I just couldn't get a real deep inhale on stage. And I've lost like 20 pounds before the tour. I was really making a conscious effort to be healthy. And I was living cleaner. I stopped smoking pot and all that shit, you know. And uh, and just every night I was like, what is it? God, I'm old. Like, this is middle age. It's here now, you know. Something's going on. But I guess it was just slowly <laughs> metabolizing through my system. But you, you essentially beat it with no Western medicine, you're saying. Yeah, I'm just healthy. I was, you know, I mean, it sucked. I've, I've definitely never woken up in my entire life and said I need to go to the emergency room. Yeah, and this was like a something's very not right here. And yeah, and then it went away. And then you know, some friend like Prime passed away. That was pretty close after. I don't know, man. It's it's so funny to me that you see all the denial and people just calling it fear mongering or whatever. We we're here renting a house. Uh, on the East Coast, and or the guy we were renting from, he got it and was in the hospital for a while, like the handyman, who I would constantly have to ask him to mask up every time he come over in the yard. He would kind of look at me and laugh. He was in the hospital for two weeks just recently, so, you know, he's not laughing now, but it's it's some real shit, man. <laughs> Absolutely. May, I'm so glad you're, I'm so glad you're over it. It's, uh, like I said, now it's, I feel strangely sort of rejuvenated i haven't felt i'm probably just from being off and having rest for the first time in eight years but i feel pretty great right now yeah uh tell me about kentucky you grew up in kentucky Mm -hmm. what's it like growing up there i I, and again i'm really asking out of ignorance i know very little in some ways not at all what most people probably think and in a lot of ways exactly like that um kentucky's a weird state depending on what corner or region you're in you might as well be in different worlds I'm originally from southeastern Kentucky or the Appalachian region. So, um, a lot of, you know, we used to be coal mining, strip mining country, uh, bluegrass country. And then my, my dad had a, he was a state trooper. He kind of ran the gamut of that career. And I think when, when I was younger, he was doing some more uh, sketchy kind of work that put a lot of stress on my mom and, and, and their marriage when I was a young kid. So, I think we ended up moving he took a transfer and got out of doing that stuff. And uh, we ended up moving up to central Kentucky, eventually settling in a little town, uh, Versailles. The locals call it Versailles. <laughs> I remember, you know, it's a good place to grow up, but I do remember always feeling the wanderlust, you know. So I, I left I left for boot camp in the Navy, I don't know, a week and a half, two weeks after I graduated high school, just ready to go and get out, you know. Yeah. What was the music in the house that you grew up in like? Oof. In the house I grew up in, my mom would listen to a lot of Motown, like Rod Stewart and stuff like that. And then she had, she still had her old 45s when she was a teenager. And then my grandmother had, a, she had one of those old, you know, the those furniture type record players that had the built-in speakers and you'd flip the lid and had to reach down in. And my grandmother just had a ton of old soul music. And that's what she listened to. So those are probably the first records I was exposed to. And then CCR. And uh, my, I think the first song I learned how to play on guitar was probably Sunshine of Your Love. How old were you then? Probably s- was second grade. So I got my first guitar around second or third grade. And I remember why, I was like Nickelodeon was really big back then, you know. So I remember I, was, I watched The Monkees when I was a little kid on TV. So Honestly, those songs had all those records, those songs which we now know were like Nielsen and Neil Neil Diamond tunes. So you know, they're getting that melodic chop burned into your brain at a young age. And then uh, I had an older cousin and also an older next door neighbor. Both of them were teenagers when I was in like I'd say fifth grade. 
and they both corrupted me pretty good and proper. I mean, I, I was exposed to Appetite for Destruction and I don't even know, man, Hendrix and the whole Zeppelin box set found it all. Like probably I, I used to say way too young, but now, I mean, I responded immediately. So I guess it was right on time, you know. When you were a kid and you, you'd hear Jimi Hendrix and you'd hear Appetite for Destruction, did it all seem like it was um, music from the past or was it clear when something was more current and something was from the more distant past? I, I definitely think it was clear when things were more from a different era or just the way I remember like the sound of it, you know, just it just sounded lived in and cooler. And mm -hmm. but now, you know, Appetite, even that sonically uh, to a fourth or fifth grader, because at the time MTV was probably playing God knows what poison and Def Leppard videos ad nauseum over and over. And I, rem I remember vividly seeing that video for Welcome to the Jungle come on because we, we were living in this apartment one summer and I couldn't go outside. Mom and dad worked all day and I had to stay inside. And uh, I was so young, I couldn't really do much. So I was just sit and watch MTV all day and that video came on, man. And it was like, you could just feel the danger. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh shit, this is, this is something entirely different. Like this is real, you know? And I remember, I remember that being so clear, like I got to know everything about this, you know? And, um, and then later on that year, I guess, I hadn't really heard the record yet. And we had an older, my next door neighbor was this older kid, Michael, and he had a Navy blue Chevy Nova and he like used to run away from home all the time and shit. You know, he's a bad kid. And, uh, he was, he was basically Wooderson from, from Days and Confused. And, uh, he pulled up one day just cranking that record in his car. And I was out, I was outside. I don't even know what I was doing. Probably sitting on my butt in the grass. And I heard it. And I was just like, what is that, man? And he, and he was such a dick. He was just like, fuck, you been a kid in a cave with Guns N' Roses, man. And he gave me the cassette tape. Like he gave me the cassette and it still had, had the original artwork in the middle with the robot jumping the fence and all that shit. And man, I wore it out. My mom found it, threw it away because she saw the she saw the artwork and everything. I think I ended up buying like two more copies that ended up getting trashed. But that that record was a huge a huge bomb going off for me. And then, yeah, Cream, Hendrix, and then I had a big Clapton phase for a while. I got real into Clapton and just like reading everything I could find about him. And then that takes you down these holes to. You know, guys like Peter Green and uh, all the John Mayle stuff, which which takes you back to the Chicago and Delta. And it was just this rabbit hole, man. I was like a weird 16-year-old into a lot of shit that, you know, was probably nerdy, I guess, looking back on it. Uh, did you have many experiences of your mom taking away stuff and throwing it away? That record and the other one she pulled, she popped out of the tape deck and tossed out the car window once with Steppenwolf when the pusher came on. Wow. She was just like, no, sir. <laughs> you know, so uh, anything talking about pimping and pushing hoes and, and selling <laughs> drugs was probably nothing your mom, a mom wants their nine-year-old bumping to. And my dad was a state cop, too, and he was probably the the biggest supporter of it. He bought me my first guitar. And What was what was your dad's taste in music like? Rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah, he took me, he took me to see Van Halen in, like, fourth or fifth grade, so it was always, you know, he liked to party. Yeah. Do you ever go down rabbit holes of uh, different kinds of music that you haven't listened to before? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important. Um, I, one year, what year did Blonde come out, the Frank Ocean record? 16, maybe? When Sailor's Guide, I think it was around the same time Sailor's Guide came out. And I was just, I wanted to listen to something like so far away from anything that I did or understood. 
and I heard a song, a friend of mine played, was listening to that and heard a song. And I was just like, I remember being struck by the production values and the sounds. And I, I, I just was like, I have no idea what he's doing or how he made these noises. And that, and it really fascinated me to just stick my head in something that was so different than, than the tools that we use, you know? And I listened to that record for about a month straight, must have been. But yeah, a lot of hip hop, weirdly. Maybe not. I don't know. One thing I never really got into, I guess, was jazz. Other than the, the basics, you know. Yeah. I predict you will. Maybe. <laughs> It's coming. Yeah, hillbilly jazz. but uh... Let's talk about bluegrass a little bit in general. I, I know almost nothing about it. Tell me about, what do you know about bluegrass? You could start from the beginning. Well, okay, I got out of the Navy. I know, I know more now. I've forgotten a lot. In my 20s, I was obsessed, like scoured the earth kind of shit. Um, and when I was younger, my grandfather, I wrote this little letter I sent out with the record. He, he, my paternal grandfather was obsessed with it. It's all he thought about. Spent his entire later years going to festivals, and it's all he listened to, uh, to the point it would drive my mom crazy. And he would always try to push it on me, you know, even like a real young age. But my palate wasn't ready, man, because it's, it's very complex music, you know. It was always recorded, or would you see people play it live? Mostly field recordings, and then he took me to a festival one year out at the horse park, and it was like that was that. I do remember vividly feeling like I was watching magic because these guys were like dancing around the mic. It was old school, you know, still early '80s. And then in Jackson, where I'm from, every Labor Day they have this thing, a festival in the city called the Honey Festival. And on Friday nights, I think they'd have rock bands, and on Saturday night it was bluegrass, and all the old timers. I mean, dude, it was like something right out of a, a time warp. These guys would come down from the hollers and the hills, like in their starch shirts and overalls and dance to this shit. And it was like probably the last of that stuff, you know, time capsule kind of thing. But those images are burned into my head. And so that was really the early exposure. But then it wasn't until I got out of the military, uh, I'd gotten off some pretty, pretty heavy drugs was kind of floating pretty hard for about a year and I got home and I was clean. I was just like dealing with all that, like the shame spiral and everything and like trying to figure out my mom had remarried nothing. Was, everything was just up, uplifted. You went into the military just to escape, escape home. Basically. Uh, well, yeah, escape home. And also I, I kind of got in some trouble. I got really lucky, but I, I got in some trouble my senior year of high school, just doing shit. I shouldn't have been. And it was sort of like a wake up call. What was the experience, your service experience like? Uh, well, it was peacetime for starters. And I was stationed overseas for the for majority of it in Asia, Southeast Asia. And we'd go a lot of places I, I would have never seen otherwise. And that turned into some songs later on in life, thankfully. But, um, you know, a lot of, lot of experiences that were eye-opening. A lot of expense, experiences that were probably things I could have done without things. I wish I hadn't seen older dudes. I hadn't, I wish I hadn't been exposed to, you know, sailors and life that comes with that. And you just hard to wash a lot of that shit off, man. Um, but then we, that was a lot of, a lot of, mostly a lot of drinking and partying, to be honest with you. And, and, uh, a lot of girls, that kind of thing. Like what you do when you're stuck in this, like, tyrannical oppressive environment with lots of sharp corners and gray paint you know what i mean like as an artist it was like what the fuck have i done you know and you're you're stuck we'd go out to sea sometimes like 90 108 days 
you know so like it's basically prison <laughs> i mean you're basically yeah. in prison eating better food maybe i don't know so i got out and uh, i was just ready to i was ready to not be that anymore and i went a little yeah. too buck wild how long were you in for uh long enough about three years yeah and like i said i just sort of burned it at both ends and i came home and i was really lost man i was really lost and probably severely depressed and serotonin levels were still finding their way home and that kind of shit and uh driving down the road one day and i heard it was a monroe brothers song and i want to i'm trying to remember what the song was it wasn't something as easy as it was like a deep cut probably long journey home or something man and it, i had to pull the truck over i was just like the, the tears just it just it, it slammed me in the chest everything like i whatever it was there was an extremely visceral connection and a, an emotional reaction to that music and then for the next i'd say seven or eight years I don't give a fuck about anything else. Was it in the song itself, or were you reconnecting to something from childhood by hearing it? It was the inflection of their voices. It was the 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 lyric, the underlying like dare I say religious themes, but like pain and lament and sorrow. But mostly, man, it was just the voice, the voices and the music and the notes. It took me back to like just childhood memories and like funerals and. These things that you can't really put a finger on, but I knew like this is this is where I'm from. We'll be right back with more of Rick's conversation with Sturgill after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Rick Rubin and Sturgill Simpson. Let's talk about the Sailor's album a little bit. It's uh, it, it's very different than what came before. How about how does it happen? I mean, that one. I think more than any record I've made, I probably heard in my head, in or in terms of the blueprint before we went in, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to incorporate. I was listening to a lot of Marvin Gaye, a lot of Memphis Elvis stuff at the time, and wanted to, you know. Meta Modern was just me and the three other guys in the room. Once we set the mics up and hit record, we didn't really move or change anything. It was it wasn't uh, so the songs has all kind of been carved out live on the road in this three month tour prior to us going in and banging that record out. And so I knew I didn't want to do something that stripped down and raw again for starters. And then two, I was my I was my first label record, and the only reason I really signed with the label was for a larger recording budget. So I was like, well. You know, I don't really want to make a ten thousand dollar album because that's that's not what we're doing here. So, uh, and you have that toolbox now available and opened up to you, and I just kind of went all in on it, man, and wanted to make this really lush and cinematic uh, sort of soundscape to accompany the story of the album. And some of it was notes. Some some like I told you, man, I had like probably four songs, five songs. And then we got in the studio and I had like little pieces and things that there was nothing for me to like play for the band so they could chart out form and sit there and do the things. So it was kind of like nobody really knew what was happening but me. To much to Ferg's uh dismay some days. <laughs> and uh but it, it all came together pretty pretty fast. I think four, four or five days maybe. And so you did the basic tracks with the band and then all of the orchestration happened after? Yeah, we overdubbed the strings and the horns later. Yeah, but those were in your original vision for the songs. Those were always there. Some yes and no, but it was. I think there was there was definitely a moment once with that first three days of tracking, and I just looked at Ferg and I was like, "We got to do Cox this shit, man." I was like, "We got to get we got to get strings." I want to hear horns. He was just, he just kind of sat there smoking a cigarette. He's like, "Yeah," and then you know so uh we went up to new york for a couple of days and recorded the dab kings and the and the string quartet there at the atlantic studios yeah and then that's when i finally heard it you know what i mean it's just like okay there it is it's such a surprise coming from the first two records you know it's like right. it's a total departure but for me not so much i felt like getting away from other influences or maybe agendas I was finally able to make the music I'd actually been influenced by and listening to as a kid growing up, which was more yeah. soul and rock and roll and things more so than like Hank Jr. or Waylon Jennings, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, I moved to Nashville and I just had all these country songs and I guess and it, just not knowing where to start. Well, this is what you do now. You make like these hard country records. And I love that music too, but I don't really hear a lot of my voice, especially on that first one. Meta modern more so because, like I said, we worked it out on the road, and uh, and Dave did a good job on the console, 
and mic choices and stuff like that. But Sailor's Guide was honestly, for me, I guess, stretching my legs a little bit more for the first time. And talk about the new one a little bit. The grass was, there was zero planning on that one. That was definitely, okay, well, I've always wanted to make a bluegrass record. Now I have the time. I'm not going on tour anytime in the next two or three years. So uh, I I was feeling better. I think I was mostly just excited that I I was finally feeling good by June, early June. And I called Ferg up and I was like, man, I've I've always wanted to do this. We did this big fundraiser thing online because I had this, I've been on Instagram for maybe a month or two, and then just everything hit the fan. We had incorporated some charity stuff into the tour with the ticket sales, and I was just trying to figure out a way to continue that and actually hold hold through on that promise. So, uh, and then it turned in. You know, there's a big tornado in Nashville, and all the COVID shit. And we just we were like, well, we could raise some money for Music Cares because everybody's out of work now, and the fans totally blew it out of the water man i don't know what what i expected all in all we raised about a half million dollars i think so amazing i was just like well i i gotta put a record out now because i promised him i would so it was like just uh i also knew i was about to have at least the rest of this year off yeah and I, i knew i wanted to spend a lot of time focusing on my kids and home things that had sort of slipped through the cracks because of the work and I didn't want to sit around the next six months thinking about what that next thing would be. So I just said, fuck it, let's just do the next thing now and get it in the can. And it was I'm glad I did it because now I've just been fishing and changing diapers for the last couple months while we were set up putting this thing out. It's great, though. It's I love it. Thanks, man. I really love it. Had you ever looked at the songs through the filter of bluegrass before making the record? I mean, yeah, they were all written on a D28 probably sung and played a little too fast just because that's where my natural I have a tendency to push things a little bit ahead like most bluegrass pickers and um, so when you make country records you basically just slow everything down I could put some form changes here and there to make it stretch out and, and phrases but they were all I mean no bullshit man I'd say 80% of them were written as more as bluegrass songs than anything so 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 these renditions of the songs are closer to how they were originally written yeah before they became country songs. Well, they're, they're written closer to who I am more naturally. Uh, that's my voice and my instrument. And like I say, if, like, if, you, if I had to express myself in a medium as truly as possible, this would be it. Yeah. It's one of the things I came away from listening to it was um, the lyrics. Now, even though I've heard these songs before, there's something about hearing lyrics when there's not drumming going on. Yeah that they hit you in a different way. You 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 understand them in a different way. I'm pretty hard to like understand it, in general. So. <laughs> it feels like this this album really is the the storytelling version of the sto- of these songs where it's really about the lyrics. Thanks man. Yeah, it's always been some I've never said anything about it, but it has always sort of bothered me that uh the last 6 or 7 years I put these records out and I'm writing all the songs and all anybody talks about is my voice or the production or the instruments, but it's like they're missing the story. Yeah. And then even some of the fans aren't really listening, or at least some of the fans I used to have because they've kind of fallen off now that they figured out more who I am. <laughs> so it's been, it's, it's all just learning and growth, I think. But finally hearing these songs the way they were probably always intended to is, is very gratifying for me. 
is it is it acceptable to do songs that are not in the canon in the bluegrass style? I'm, I don't. I think anything is acceptable if you mean well, it. I'm just asking in the bluegrass community. I, I don't. I don't know anything about bluegrass. I mean, I, I I was told like it was unacceptable to put horns on a country record, even though I grew up in my grandfather's car here in Merle Haggard do it. So I don't. I don't know, man. I guess it depends who you ask, based on their their criteria of what fits their identity that week. I don't know. I I made what I thought to be a true bluegrass record with some songs that are probably country songs and, and also, and also bluegrass songs. So, yeah, I feel like it's got potential to turn more people onto bluegrass who might not already be into it. I feel like that's the real potential that's held in this work. That That's the goal. I mean, I w- I've always been trying to turn people on, even with the earlier stuff, maybe to country music that wouldn't necessarily be into it or to change their opinions of what it could be. And then I've, I've, it's been all, this is weird to say, but having that word, that C word attached to my name as an artist has probably been more of a detriment to me in my career in terms of reaching my actual fan base than anything, because so many people that don't listen to country music, they only know it by what they've been told the last 25 years to believe it is, you know, from watching award shows on TV and stuff or, uh, you know, I, don't, I have no desire to, to sit here and talk shit about any of that crap but anymore, but it, it just is what it is, you know. Um, yeah. So then you have to sort of point out, you know, it can also be this, you know. I don't know if artists would ever really give any of this stuff thought if they didn't have to sit down and answer questions when it was time to put records out about it, yeah. you know. I think sometimes it's interesting to think about, though. Like, if, I feel like uh, we find clarity through through discussion would think about things we wouldn't normally think about. And I don't know, I learn a lot through the conversations, you know? Well, you know, man, I'll tell you what, starting in this business at 35, 36, really actually taking a go at it, trying to be a pro musician. I was, I was damn near middle-aged. Unlike I'd say 95 or even more percent of the people that start out at 18 or 19. And this is all they ever know, you know? And I was so, I was so hell bent at first on like I'd finally found something in my life to be ambitious about because we had a child on the way and I knew like I have to make this work. This has to happen. It has to succeed. I got to take care of my family. I want to have something I can look back on and know that like I didn't compromise whatsoever. And it's like I did this the right way. And it was very important to me and it still is. And then somewhere along the lines, you know, you get on the train and it's hard. I've always said it's hard to tell how fast the train's going when you're on it. And next thing you know, you think, well, like you get in, you get sucked in or like manipulated. The music industry has a really uh, scientifically applied methodology about making artists feel like if they don't keep treading water, they're going to drown because everybody's got to keep generating their paychecks. You know what I mean? And uh, if something's working, you want it to keep working. So you just keep throwing fuel on the fire. And the next thing you know, you wake up and you're just completely burnt out. And you're like, how did this happen? Who Who was taking care of me? to keep this from happening. And I realized that nobody was putting more pressure on me than I was. And I tell you two things, I can, there was two very distinct incidences that were wake up calls for me and very touchstone reminders. The first one was when I went to Merle Haggard's house for the very first time ever. And he, I think Merle only won one Grammy in his career. And when you walked into the house, 
it was sitting on the floor used as a door stopper to hold the screen door open, just scratched and beat all to hell. And I was like, got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, the second one was when Ferg, when we came out to L.A. to go to the awards and when he took, he came, he brought me to visit and meet you for the first time. And I can't, really? we, yeah, we were hanging out. We were there in the room that you're sitting in right now. And he asked you, you got any records up for anything this year, Rick? And you said, I don't know. And I knew you weren't bullshitting. And I was like, that's it. That, I mean, that's it. Just, just make art and fuck the rest, you know? And, uh, yeah. and I've been trying to like commit and live in that headspace ever since, man. And just, just block out all the, the trivialness and the hegemony yeah. of the the system that, that makes us think we all have to end up on these lists every year, like standing at a podium, giving little speeches, because it doesn't have shit to do with anything about like connecting with human beings and making music. Yeah. There's so many distractions that, that uh, can really get in the way and, uh, and, and putting the blinders on and focusing on making something that you love. That's all it's about. If you love it, it doesn't matter if anyone else likes it. And if you love it, there's a better chance someone else might like it because at least one person cares about it. You. Yeah. Or it wasn't for that person. Which is fine. But there's two or three other people out there that maybe everything I've done before wasn't for them, but this thing saved their fucking life. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's hard to, to describe. Yeah. How much do you take into consideration the audience in the making process when you're writing and when you're recording? Is it okay to say zero? Absolutely. That's the right answer. In the studio, I'm not thinking about how's this going to translate live. That's all. That's yeah. like a problem to worry about later, you know? Yeah. It's really just, does it feel right? Does it sound right? Could this be better? Or uh, is it, is this gross enough? I don't know. Like, these are thoughts that I have more so that are people going to like this. I think if you start thinking like that, you're going to make some shitty records. For sure. Absolutely. That's, that's why I asked the question. And so, and there are so many artists who really do pollute their process thinking about the audience, and it and it really just undermines the whole, the whole enterprise. Oh, and you can hear that if like, people just keep making the same records over and over. Then what are you yeah. what are you really chasing or serving? I guess. But well, the bluegrass thing, honestly, this probably came more of a yes. What I was listening to. I mean, before we cut this, like I was listening. I love Van Morrison. Him and Marvin are probably my two favorite singers, and. And I think I love Van Morrison even more because a lot of times it's hard for me to understand what he's saying. And that's a complaint that I get about my voice a lot. It's like the enunciation becomes far less important than the emotion behind the note. You know what I mean? And like, you can just feel him squeezing and it's coming from all these different places as opposed to just like, I am articulating now, you know what I mean? But listening to a lot of his stuff, I feel like with the bluegrass record, I, I feel more um, in tune to to that kind of thing right now. Maybe more of like a hillbilly astral week sort of. That would be like my dream record to make. Sounds pretty good. It's one I'd like to hear. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, it's it's weird because I, I I wasn't wasn't on social media at all until this year, and I you know I don't want to be like some definitely have no desire in like hiding behind a public persona or some crafted image to sell records. So I don't know how to, maybe it's a detrimental at times. So I do engage with people, even though people say not to, I mean, the fans are coming, they want to connect and know you. 
And I've realized that that platform is invaluable in the case you ever really wanted to represent yourself as opposed to having to go through the filter of the press or, uh, you know, a, a press release and hope that the narrative is what you intended it to be. Whereas opposed to now, like I could just, I got a mic and a light and a computer. I can get online and say whatever I want, however I want to say it. And it can't be twisted. So I think I'll always keep it for that if no other reason, but also like just seeing the love from people, man. And, and the really seeing the difference that music makes in people's lives, especially through shit like what's happening right now. Um, it's been really motivating for me in a way. And, and sometimes the haters are the, the funnest part. Like, I've, you know, if you read that shit, after a while, it truly doesn't mean anything anymore. And it's, it almost, I told my wife, like this summer, I would get on there and blast them back for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes every day with my coffee. And I was told her, like, this is kind of like my yoga now. Like I do that and then I don't look at it. And I can go walk out in the woods and I just feel amazing, you know? So it's so, and eventually they go away. It's so funny. The also the, the social dynamic of it all is if life isn't complex enough, it just fascinates me. Something last week, I, I, she pointed out that like I was the record was number one on iTunes. My wife told me that she was like, "Yeah, it's, it's between you and Luna." This this K-pop band. I was like, "That's insane!" You know, it's like the bluegrass record and K-pop record. And I made a post about the absurdity of that. And of course, there was like, you, you can't control it. It's like you've seen Ghostbusters too. No, okay, I'll spare you. Anyway, there's a river of slime, and when you talk mean to it. It bubbles up when I think, well, that's like, that's the internet, you know? And of course, like some, some slime bubbles started popping up and it was teetering in some cases towards some, some xenophobia. And I was just like, oh shit, like, what did I, what did I do? You know, I feel, I feel responsible. You can't control, you, you create this, this ripple and then it turns into this other thing and it's out of your hands. So then all the all the Luna fans started coming at me on Twitter, man. It, like it, it was like, holy shit, this is amazing to watch in a way. And then I listened to the record and I was like, man, I kind of dig Luna. This is actually pretty bumping. <laughs> uh, so I just said, like, look, guys, you need to motivate. You know, these girls deserve they deserve more love and respect. And like, if you want them at number one, you need to get off your ass and do the work. You know, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, it's like, where's my t-shirt? Uh, I'm here for it. Orbit all the way and. It turned into a really beautiful thing in the end. We'll be right back with Sturgill Simpson in just a moment. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. 
Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Sturgill Simpson. You said when you came back from the Navy, you were depressed. How would you say your moods tend to run in general? Like what's your, uh, Oh bro. Uh, I'm a Gemini. Um, pretty mercurial. Uh, I can, I can, I can either be the nicest, most giving kindest human being on the planet, or like I can definitely, uh, I'm aware like, especially in the zone if i'm working is it like that you're focused to the point of where niceties uh no man it's environmental uh, i had a real tumultuous childhood there was some trauma there and then uh between between uh like just experience the military and then working railroad i just wasn't i was never in these nurturing environments you know what i mean i was always in like shit needs to be done now world and i don't have time for your fucking feelings so yeah coming into this world at 35 and learning like, Oh, these are artists and sensitive people. Like I'm also a very sensitive dude, you know, I'm a very emotional dude. And, uh, we're all vulnerable and we all have like giant egos and the insecurity that comes with that and learning how to be a better leader or, uh, uh, just to empathize with people who, although you need them to do a job, like they also have lives outside of that. And, um, even people that have worked, for me, like I have very clear expectations, you know, uh, especially when you're paying people money yeah. and, and not, not just musicians, like just I've, I've lost friends and relationships around me just from like, I am not happy with what you're doing. And these are my expectations. And then people start crying in the meeting and all of a sudden like, okay, well, I guess I can't verbalize those things um, like that anymore. And these have been very, very important lessons for me, like to know, 
everything is not a train that's 45 minutes late. But it's it's always circumstantial. It's not just uh, you wake up in a bad mood one day and... No, nah, man, I probably got some some shit, some shit going. You know, I probably got, me and Kanye got the same birthday. I'm just gonna leave it at that. You know, uh, but all of that with children and and family and root. The last four years is I'm feeling. I had some I had some stuff going on. I'll just be really honest without teetering up to like insurance policy red flags and shit. It was 2017 <laughs> and 2018 uh, got pretty dark. I don't know why. I think I just was out there too long. I was drifting too hard and things got slippery and I fell back into some, some ugly shit, especially in, on the road. And, uh, you know, you spend too much time alone in hotel rooms, man. And sometimes that translates into more escape and freedom on stage. And it's not necessarily a good thing, but, uh, and then I woke up to it and just decided, you know what? I'm done. That shit's never, never happening again. And, uh, ever since then, it's just been like, focusing on trying to be a better husband and a, a, a best father I can be and not wasting this opportunity that I've been given, which is to make art that will be here long after I'm gone and affect people that I'll never even know or meet. And like when you really weigh the gravity of that, it's an immense responsibility. Absolutely. I think the only people who I've ever met who've become successful musicians starting in their 30s are you and Bill Withers. I think you're the only two. I was just talking the other night on a Zoom call with Donald Glover about some other things, and he he said the same thing. His manager, Fan, told me that once two years ago, and I watched that documentary. And I, I love Bill Withers' music, but I didn't really ever know that much about his life, and it it was kind of... I was taken aback. Some of the similarities, especially in our life before music. He was in the Navy. I think he was from a West Virginia coal town. Hated the industry side of the business, the fickleness yes. and uh, the manipulation of it all. I was, I was just like, whoa, man. And then Donald, yeah, Donald, we were just talking about the other night. And Bill also, uh, I don't know. He, I love the interviews I have read that he gave since then. It, it, I, I feel like I understood and know that guy. Just how he handles those situations and those types of questions and there's not a lot of uh fool suffering i guess <laughs> no um yeah one of the things that's that were was really interesting about him as well is that his music is put in a box because of the genre that he came from right as you know urban music really because he's black yeah but he has more in common with bob dylan than than he does with most R&B, you know, he's really a singer-songwriter. He's a folk song. He's a folk singer. Folk songwriter, basically. With incredible you know, feel. <laughs> incredible. Do you think yourself more as a guitar player, songwriter, singer? Like, does the music come first, or is it what you're saying? It just depends, man. I've never made a record the same way twice. And it wasn't intentional. It's just the way it worked out. Like the way we approached Sound of Fury wasn't anything like Sailor's Guide or Metamodern and Cutting Grass was the easiest thing I've ever done, the fastest thing. But I mean, I, I play guitar every day. I got I got a '54 Strat downstairs. That's like the first hour of my day every morning. But the songs, if I'm like, if you're asking like, where do the songs come from? Usually a melody or like me just playing. All my songs are written on acoustic guitars. 
And then I come up with little riffs and things around later, but it's always like a melody singing mostly. It comes from in here. And usually the melody comes before the words? Usually a line will start things and then the rest comes generally pretty quick. I'm not one of those guys that like wakes up every day and says, I'm going to write for three hours and like trying to craft like a creative college essay or some shit. It really like if it takes me more than 40 minutes to write a song, it's probably not a very good song. Do you write a lot of songs? It goes in phases. I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> but when I sit down and do it, yeah, I'll write like five or six in a week usually. But no, I don't sit down every day and be like, I'm a disciplined songwriter. And I, God bless people that can do that. It's just not for me. Do you, do you collect lines like um, yeah. over the course of your life if you overhear a phrase or uh, or an idea for a song? Yeah, a lot of a lot of scribbled napkins, a lot of like notes in your phone where like you'll write a line and then six months later that ends up being the first thing in a chorus or something. Or I hear somebody's a lot of songs come from hearing things, just observation. You'll hear people talking or pick something up and it's underlying meanings or turning things that weren't meant to be metaphors into them. Just play on words kind of stuff fascinates me more than anything, I guess. Have you ever written a song without having an instrument in your hand? Like has it ever come for sure at work like work i find i don't have a job anymore but when i worked at the railroad or when i was in the navy just like purpose and daily monotonous purpose like a lot of a lot of songs and music and melody can come out of that man like yeah you know without without being conscious of it thing I, yeah a lot of music comes to me like that when i'm not sitting down to write music uh, i wrote turtles in the shower you know, pretty much that whole entire first two verses just like came to me in a shower one morning and I literally almost killed myself getting out of the shower to write it all down. Yeah. What was it like working uh, for the railroad? Actually, I loved it, man. Um, what was the job? What was your job? I started as a switchman on a switching yard as like uh, this intermodal operator, the Union Pacific Yard. And then you kind of go through, you work up like things. An engineer would drive the trains our main job, it was like a main artery center for the entire Western region of the United States. We'd have trains coming literally in an X from all corners of the United States. They'd pull in and we'd have to tear them apart, put other cars on them, slough them off, build other trains, and then get them crewed and out the gate on time and that kind of thing. So it was like heavy dude shit, you know. It's definitely saw train wrecks and, uh, you know, big, big boy pants <laughs> type stuff. And I ended up, I became a yard master for a while, which is like you're in this pickup truck with, 18 radios and you're kind of coordinating all the movements of everything. And then they had a nighttime assistant manager position come open and I decided more money, let's do it. Did that. And then I just, by chance, about a year later, the main operations manager took a transfer and they offered me, they offered me the office and like running the operations of, of the yard. And I took it and that's where I fucked up or I'd probably still be there. I uh, just, you know, with with the conference calls and all that, gets literally screamed at by dudes I'll never meet in my life because the train came in two minutes late and left th three minutes early instead of picking up an hour, you know. Um, and I, I think I hit vapor lock in a way, just like, wow, this is not this is not who I am. So I started playing and writing for the first time in about four years at night. And my wife, uh, we weren't married at the time, and she was just like, she just set me down one night, you know, she, cause she's like, look, I know you're miserable. This is creating tension with you and me. This is what you should be doing. Whether anything comes of it or not, this is who you are, you know? Yeah. 
Beautiful. And that was it. And we, I think two, three months later, we had sold everything we couldn't fit in the Bronco and drove to Nashville. Wow. And that Incredible. Was 2000, the end of 2010, I believe. And it's interesting if it wasn't for that change in jobs, like you say, like right. you, you, you worked your way up the ladder to yeah. the point of where it didn't suit you anymore. And luckily we get, we yeah. get your music now. Yeah, I mean, before I took the management gig, man, I was out on the yard like 12 hours a day and it was a good, we'd work three days, have three days off, work four, have four off, you know, and Salt Lake City's beautiful, man. Uh, it's kind of a well-kept secret. The yard was out in the West part of the Valley in the desert, so, like, my office was looking at the Okra Mountain Range, and over here's the western face of the Rockies, and there's 300 days of sunshine. And uh, I, I very well possibly might still be there if yeah. I, if all of that hadn't gone the way it did, which is a strange thing to think about. Yeah, it's amazing how, uh, how so much of this is out of our control, you know? Yeah. Control is uh, an interesting concept. Letting go of that, I think, has been the greatest lesson for me but also that job taught me a lot that most musicians probably don't know like logistics and overhead and keeping numbers in the black so like you know even the people around me i i keep a pretty tight grip on my business and i'm and i'm thankful for that because i see how i see how easy it would be for a lot of artists just be copacetic and complacent and then you wake up and you're like why am i broke you know so that would be that's something in terms of dealing with, with the mechanics and especially with record labels. And then I self-managed myself for about three years. So I learned more about the business than I probably want to know just out of sheer necessity. I would sit on you know, lawyers and make them explain things to me and like really the back channels of how it all unfortunately works. Um, so, and that's been good. And it's in terms of like working with my friends, people like Tyler and Margo, I've been able to um, hopefully give them some pretty valuable advice to keep them from making even some of the mistakes that I made knowing what I know, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just finding a new path in what is ultimately a wild, wild west again. And, and there's a real opportunity for artists to put a lot of the power back in their own hands. Yeah. Any recommendations you have for, uh, for artists in general? Don't sign anything. There's no such thing as a good record deal, even if you got a great one. It's just a, it's essentially a, a bad loan from a really shitty bank. And in this day and age, if you got work ethic and hustle, and you're not afraid to go out and do the laps, and by that I mean go out and build a fan base as opposed to going to an industry town and waiting for a bunch of suits to make it happen for you, because that ain't going to happen. They're not taking gambles anymore. And if that does happen... I guess those are the people that like wake up and don't know how hard they just got fleeced a year later. Um, but if you want to play music, do what musicians do and go play music. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I did. And that's the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you right now. Yeah. Make good music, play good shows, wash, rinse, repeat. My wife, we're okay. But like she told me one time and I realized she was serious. I probably turned down more money than I made just because of what yeah. came with it. You know, cause like that, yeah. a lot of it really kind of freaks me out. Because you're, as an introverted only child, you're letting a lot of shit into your bubble. Yeah. And there it is, you know. And I know there will be a day where I probably uh, don't do this anymore. Yeah. So. I wonder I wonder if that's true. Because if this really is what you're meant to be doing, you can do this for a long time. And in some ways, by choosing not to take the check, you're not taking the office job you're still working in the train yard, yeah, doing the thing that that feels good. 
Yeah, I think for me, I love the studio. I love creating, and I love playing live when I want to. Yeah, uh, I don't know that I really ever feel the need to go spend nine months a year on a tour bus again, though. That's not really. At a certain point, you're like, wait, who am I doing this for? You know, because uh, I wanted to go home three months ago. <laughs> like, so I think it's learning your limits and learning. You just want everything to be the best you have to give. And it's hard to be inspired if you're not. So that that's what I've learned from it all. Sometimes the best thing I can do for my music is to not play music and go and just live, live for a while. Yeah. I really haven't been, I've been fishing all summer, man. We're down, we're down here on the coast. So I just feeding the crabs and playing guitar, playing with the kids, uh, reading a lot of Harry Potter to them. And then, uh, you know, at night I spend time on the internet looking at really expensive cars that go way too fast. And that's, that's sort of where I'm at, you know? Sounds pretty good. Yeah. It's something to do. Yeah. Writing, writing songs when they come and then looking at, looking forward to what's next. Great, man. Well, thank you for talking. You too, man. Thank you, Rick. Thanks to Sergio Simpson for catching up with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite Sturgill songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries, and if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.